welcome to the Student Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Rutherford from Learn, Grow, Become, where we work with universities and higher education providers to empower mature age and part-time students to gain the mindset, the strategies, and the confidence to succeed in their studies. Welcome to this episode of the Student Experience Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sam Jacob. Sam brings more than 30 years experience in higher education across both the UK and Australia, including senior roles at the Laurier International Universities, at Deakin University, Monash University, University of South Australia, the University of Adelaide, and Sam's current role is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Student Engagement and Success at Charles Darwin Uni. Sam's leading a team of eight, of st- sorry, not of eight, of staff across eight campuses, so a lot more than eight. Um, they're responsible for transition and retention, library and learning support, contact centre management, student academic admin, student systems, counselling, access and inclusion and careers and employability. So I'm feeling like that's almost everything except the actual teaching element. (laughs) Sam is a specialist in the student services area with a particular strength in conceptualising the future needs of organisations, of driving change, implementing innovative and responsive strategies, improving quality and managing information and communication technologies. When Sam was at Laure, focused on improving employment outcomes for students and so launched a major success coaching initiative for all students in partnership with Gallup. Now at CDU, Sam has joined a young, innovative university focusing on making a difference to the remarkable desert region and tropical top end of Australia. And unfortunately, it's an area I haven't been to yet, but definitely on my to-do list. Um, And Charles Darwin also has a a very big focus on its national and its international neighbours. Glad to be in a dual sector university, Sam is driving a transformational change program to improve student outcomes, especially for students in equity groups, which we're going to talk a bit more about today. Sam holds postgraduate qualifications in management, mediation and arbitration, and occasionally is crazy enough to contemplate a PhD. They have been active in the sector for a long time, working towards safer campus communities, improving customer journeys, and also leading major retention initiatives, and of course, presenting papers at national and international conferences. Sam is a fellow for the Association of Tertiary Education Management, is currently mentoring other Darwin-based professionals in the Northern Territories Government's Women and Leadership Program. Sam has served on a number of community boards, including as Deputy Chair of Melbourne's Midsummer Festival, the Chair of Adelaide's Feast Festival, and also currently volunteering with the Pinnacle Foundation. I feel exhausted, Sam. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to be here. Lovely to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. Oh, absolute pleasure. So if we... To start with, if we can first focus on the work that you do improving opportunities for our LGBTIQ students through the Pinnacle Foundation, and also I know you've done recent pride and diversity training, can you share with us your insights on what's needed, perhaps also what needs to change to ensure that we are providing a safe, supportive and respectful learning experience 
particularly for LGBTIQ students and also as a result, all students. Thanks, Tanya. It's a hot topic and um, and I have a lot to say, so let's see how far we get through this. Um, I've, I love the work that the Pinnacle Foundation does and I have been volunteering with them for um, a number of years now and actually I applied to be a mentor. So Pinnacle provides both a scholarship and a mentor uh, to young LGBTQIA plus students um, and Often the power of, of Pinnacle really comes to bear through the mentorship rather than through the financial support. Um, it's students perceive it to be the other way around, but the mentors are very powerful um, in the in the career development and learning journey for those students. And so I thought I would I would volunteer to be a mentor. And instead, Pinnacle decided that they needed some help selecting the scholars every year. So um, the Pinnacle folk wrote back to me and said. Uh, we note your interest in being a mentor, but will you come and help with our scholar selection process? And I said, yes, of course. Uh, and so I now chair that scholar selection committee. We have local and national processes to find the best young queer people every year. Um, and uh, as a result, I read about somewhere between four and 500 applications every year from young people who are either still in year 12 or have just started at uni, um, some of them in undergrad or postgrad, some of them at TAFE. Um, and I, I get to read their applications, which include information about their career aspirations, their goals, their ambitions, how they want to change the world, um, and also information about the impact of their marginalised um, sexuality or gender identity. And the impact that's had on their studies, but also on their life in general. And it's a very moving um, and sometimes disheartening process because yeah. I think there's a sense from people that, you know, we've moved on a long way, we're in a progressive country, we've got marriage equality, like what, what else is there really, like aren't we there yet? Um, and what these young people say in their masses every year to me is, no, we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, I read stories about people in a same-sex school who transition in year 11 or year 12 and the impact that has um, on them attaining a kind of ATAR that will get them into a course that will set them up for, for a career for life. Um, and that's a scenario that I think a lot of people don't think about. I read stories from applicants who, um, you know, are already at uni, are doing a course that they love, maybe are... Um, are going through a process of affirming their gender um, and then they they have to to reverse that to do a, a work placement because as part of their course they have to go into a workplace and they're not sure whether that workplace will be accommodating of their gender presentation and so they have to straighten their gender in order to participate in their placement which is required for their course and these are heartbreaking stories about people needing to put pieces of themselves away in order to cope in a system that doesn't accommodate them. So it's been a remarkable process for me to learn about how far away from progress it really feels for, for these folk. I mean, maybe if you live in inner city, Sydney or Melbourne, um, that's not quite the case. But I would say it's also given me a real sense of what happens when you intersect an LGBTQIA identity with other facets of identity. Um, and so for those students who are also Indigenous or who are also yeah. from a Muslim background or from a Jewish background or 
another faith-based culture that has strong opinions around gender or sexuality. Um, or if you're from a, um, you know, you grew up in a, in a place in regional or remote Australia where you felt really isolated and where there weren't great services around and you didn't see other people like you and you feel like you're the odd one out um, and, and the risk of that social isolation and what that does for people's sense of health and well-being. Um, or perhaps, um, you know, you might understand your gender in a more complex or nuanced way. Um, I went to a show last night and the part of the Darwin Festival and they, they welcomed ladies, gentlemen and those with genders unforeseen, which I thought was a lovely um, expression. Those of us with genders unforeseen, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe we have occupations where that's, that's harder to present. So, you know, maybe that's okay if you're in a, you know, a groovy young tech company that has great policies around gender. Um, but if, you, if you're if you in an occupation where gender roles are very strongly held, um, then that might be more challenging. And so understanding, I guess, the intersections of identity and the impact that can have on somebody's ability to understand themselves, seek support, find social connection, see themselves in the world, see themselves in their career path. Um, and, and, and so I've been honoured really to be a part of that and to see the, the, the work that particularly the mentoring, um, the work that that does for somebody's sense of self. And so if you can see somebody like, like yourself and see them progress and see them succeed and, you know, you're not the only young queer person who wants to be a human rights lawyer or you're not the only young queer person who wants to be a doctor in a regional or remote area um, and we hook you up with mentors who are further ahead of their career than you are that really changes people's sense of um, the possibilities that are open to them so um, powerful it's yeah. very powerful and it's very exciting work to be a part of um, and it, it has shown me how much I have to learn so you know, I do identify as a queer person and I, I have been involved in queer politics and queer communities and queer arts for a really long time. And I have a heap to learn from these 19 and 20 year olds who are applying to Pinnacle um, and giving me a schooling in terms of what it's like and what their, um, what, what their lived experience is of their gender and or their sexuality. And I think that's one of the things that I really learned through the Pride and Diversity training is that it, even if you know some things, you can't know everything. And so actually, rather than it being a, a traditional linear educative process, some of this is about unlearning and unknowing and remembering that the lived experience of people is the greatest teacher. And so uh, you probably hold, as I do, myths and assumptions about um, all sorts of things to do with um, queerness, gender and sexuality. But when you listen to people's lived experience, you really draw on a really rich um, a volume of data and information that that person can contribute to. And so my job is to remember that I don't know rather than to yeah. think that I do know. And I think that relieves a lot of pressure because some of my colleagues say to me, like, what if I get it wrong? I'm like, well, that's pretty much guaranteed, right, because I get things wrong still. And if I get things wrong, you're going to get things wrong too. But let's try. Let's, let's try and keep up to date with some of the new language. Let's try and, um, you know, show people that we're listening and learning. Let's not try and show people that we're experts or that we know, but let's show people 
that we care, that we have compassion, that we're interested in individual people's experience and that we have things to learn from everybody. Um, and so the Pride and Diversity training was a great opportunity for me to, to move, I, see, I guess, see a bunch of people move from being well-meaning to being well-informed. That's the transformation that happens in that training. Um, and, and, and for people to be able to be comfortable in a space of unknowing. Yeah. And so that's, that's you know, I guess it's like a, maybe a traditional learning curve where the first thing you realise is how much you don't know um, and everybody feels a bit uncomfortable about that. Um, but some of us in that training were members of the LGBTQIA community and other people weren't, and um, we all got to learn something from each other and people were comfortable to share pieces of their own lived experience and that really enriched the training that the Pride and Diversity trainers could provide. Um, yeah. And it's and it's great actually to have an organisation that's putting the labour of that education in commercial hands. Sometimes as queer people, we get asked to do a lot of labour um, around queerness and inclusion for free. Um, for free, um, yeah. and so I recommend looking at the commercial options because um, I think it's great for people to be paid for their time and effort and expertise. Um, and Pride and Diversity is just one organisation that's doing that. Yeah, I did um, earlier this year, um, I've been doing my um, feminist coach training, which has been, as you say, it's a complete unlearning yeah. um, process and like relearning all the things that you had no idea about because it's so out of your own personal experience range. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's just it is powerful to then be able to bring that into everything that you're doing. And as you say, it's okay to not be the expert. Yeah. We're trying. <laughs> and I think people like people can really respect the good-hearted nature of, of people who are making an effort and are very forgiving actually of people who um, get some things wrong. Because there is no there's often no consensus of opinion either. Like some people will tell you they prefer this language to be used, and other people will say they don't like that language. So the word queer is a perfect example. I love the word queer. I use it a lot. I use it to describe myself. I use it as a sort of umbrella term when saying all the different pieces of the acronym um, wears me down. Um, other people really hate that. They hate being aggregated. So they hate the loss of those individual identities and they hate the loss of the differences that the, that the acronym represents to them and that those different letters of the alphabet are there for a reason and they represent something quite different from the letter next to them or the letter next to that. Um, and particularly people from an older generation may have lived experience of that word being used in really terrible ways against the community. Yes. And so there, there often isn't actually a right answer. There's just layers of understanding about how nuanced language is. And we feel pretty comfortable with language being nuanced about a whole lot of other things. I think we have to get comfortable with language around gender and sexuality being just as nuanced. Yeah, and I think that also goes when we're talking about um, uh, Indigenous with, um, Indigenous people and our Indigenous students, uh, because, you know, for some it is that they identify as Indigenous. Some might be preferring First Nation. Some might be Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Some prefer just to be known as Black. So it is mm-hmm. being flexible than... Um, and I think aware that not everyone's going to like the way that mm. I'm doing it or you're doing it, but we, you know, at least 
being open to the idea that people like things in different ways and that's okay. Yeah, I learned something the other day and I thought it was really interesting. So we often talk about acknowledging country or a welcome to country. And so the word country has a, um, a particular meaning that is smaller than the geography of Australia. And so um, I listened to somebody talk about Australia as the continent and the land as the country. And it really changed my yeah. thinking around, like, how often do I use country as Australia, but still country as this sort of smaller piece, that the predating colonisation piece. And so can I start to use continent when I mean all of Australia and country when I mean the, the land as understood and by local mob? And um, I think it's great to get that schooling and it's mm. great to to sort of understand um, how language changes framing. And it really has helped me understand how important it is to protect language. Um, because for some folk, you know, for some languages, there are pieces of that language that represent a framing or a lens that actually just doesn't exist in a different language. And without protecting the language, you don't protect the thinking. You don't protect the culture, the philosophy, the approach because the language enshrines that in a way that cannot be translated. Um, so I love how many um, language speakers there are up here in the Territory. I came to the Territory to get schooled um, and, I'm, and I'm privileged to get access to that up here. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable place, both the desert and the tropics. And I love both. Um, and there's, there's vibrant, strong, rich, generous, resilient communities of people up here who are willing to give me a schooling and I say thank you. Yeah, I have to, I have to say I'm equally blessed here. Um, I'm on Durumbal country and I have some really good friends in the drum community and it is just, it's so different from my growing up in Victoria mm. uh, where it was, it was so separated um, and, yeah, learning so much more about what you can and can't do and, <laughs> and, and how different things affect people. Um, yeah, it's, it, we're very blessed. Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess so my next question um, is sort of, I guess, stepping away from, from this a little bit and more into Charles Darwin Uni itself. Um, it's getting a reputation as a rising star, uh, taking pride in approaching things differently. For some, as someone as yourself who's previously introduced a success coaching program uh, at Laura International and is actively working towards a safer and more inclusive campus communities. Uh, I'm really keen to learn more about this ambitious student experience transformation program that you and your team have been developing. Are you able to share any insights into your approach or what's to come without, I don't know, breaching protocol or <laughs> anything like that preview we like preview please <laughs> I'm a chronic oversharer so that's a good oh, thing oh cool I love that <laughs> <laughs> um I guess one of the things that I that I knew when I came here is that you can't transplant solutions from other places and just hope they work and I think in my career to date that has been very possible because you know when you move from one university in an urban metropolitan area to another university in an urban metropolitan area with similar cohorts of students, some of the same things really work. And so, you know, there's ready sharing of ideas across the sector and 
it's a bit swings and roundabouts. Somebody tries this and somebody tries the opposite and then everybody changes. Um, but you've got a, a toolkit of things that have got quite high likelihood of success in your institution if they've been successful in another institution. And one of the things that really attracted me to coming up here was because the context is so different. And so can you really transplant an urban solution um, or a metropolitan university solution into CDU um, and will that work? And um, I think the answer is as complicated as I imagined it would be. And so the answer is all sorts of yeses and noes. Um, and I'm reminded of a great colleague of mine um, that I worked with at Laureate, um, uh, uh, Chris Hill, who used to always say to me, context is king. Um, and I think that's that's really applicable up here. So, you know, there is something different about the territory. It's an enormous geography with a tiny population um, and a very vibrant frontier spirit um, and a huge, huge proportion of the population um, are First Nations people. And that that's an incredible landscape to work in and you you can't help but get um the power of this place in space so everywhere you go whether you're in desert landscape or in tropical landscape everywhere you go you're you're conscious of the power of place um either because you are so hot and you think no human being in the planet has ever been hotter than you are right now um, or because it's so beautiful and the landscape is so dramatic and so magnificent and and the seasons are wild and the weather is ferocious and 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 so you're in the rhythm of the natural world and and I've really understood how um, a lot of First Nations communities understand that connection to country and that they are country it's not a connection to a separate mm. thing called country they are country they are in and of the landscape and and in and of the natural world and taking care of country is taking care of community because country is community and so um you you get that you you, you can't work in the northern territory without starting to understand some of those things and and as a a dual sector institution, we, we have, you know, certificate one all the way through to PhDs. Um, we also have a pretty unique opportunity to have a great footprint across the territory and to meet the needs of the territory's learners at a whole loads of different stages in their lives and also with a whole lot of different career ambitions or aspirations. Um, and I think it's a really great place to undo this notion that VET serves higher ed. So it's a dual sector institution where VET stands in and of itself, in its own right, in its own fabulous outcomes without needing to serve as a pathway to higher ed, right? And I think in other dual sector institutions, VET is really seen as a feeder. A pathway, yeah. And a pathway. And, and I think um, I'm, I'm glad that we don't have that, you know, VET, VET of use to higher ed. We have, you know, VET is a beautiful and valuable product in its own right. And for a lot of industries or professions, um, the degree is not the right qualification. And so maybe it's a VET qualification and then a postgrad qualification. And it's, it's maybe not an undergrad. And so understanding the place that I'm in and understanding the, the landscape, 
of the qualifications that we deliver and the purpose that they serve. You know, we have trainers who go out on cattle stations and sleep in a swag and teach station hands how That's to so awesome. cattle. Um, you know, those folk aren't like on a pathway to higher ed. Those folk are on a pathway to working in cattle stations. Like that's their gig and 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 they're doing a fabulous job. Um, and then also, I guess, understanding. So I understand the place I'm in now. I understand the products that we're delivering. And then I'm also starting to understand the cohorts that we service. And, you know, CDU has, um, it's relatively small in the sector um with ambitious plans to maybe disrupt that a little um but we have um we have a lot of uh, australian first nation students which is really fabulous uh, last year 21 percent of all of our vet students were indigenous um and about seven uh, or eight percent of our higher ed students that's probably higher than most other providers in the country and um and we've got um, bold plans for that to grow even more so that we become more on parity with the NT population as a whole, which is at 30%. Um, 96% of our higher ed intake are not school leavers. And again, that would be one of the smallest proportion of school leavers in the country. So we we really play very strongly in the mature age market. Um, about 80% of our higher ed students choose to study online. Um, if they can, but they might be doing some sim blocks or clinical or, or workshops, et cetera, but they choose to be online where they can. Um, and only about half of our higher ed students are in the territory and about half are elsewhere. So in VET, they're almost all in the territory, but in higher ed, it's about half and half. And when they're not in the territory, they're all over the place. So we have we attract students from other regional or, or um, rural areas as well as from the, the city populations. Um, and we have a campus in Sydney, which is growing, um, and we have campuses all over the territory, campuses and study centres. So we're not the University of Darwin, we're the University of and for and in the Northern Territory with a reach that goes well beyond there. So all of that put together gives me a very um, unique context in which to apply solutions. And some of the things that might have worked in other places, I don't think would work up here, or we've tried them and they haven't worked. Some of the things that work up here might not work in other places. And so remembering that context is king. Um, we're, we're really dealing with a student population that has um, low study muscle memory. It's not low skill and it's not low capability and it's certainly not low potential but they don't have a study muscle memory, um, perhaps from recent study experience or um, you know, experience elsewhere. And so it's made us realize how much, how urgent it is to decodify tacit knowledge about studying. Um, because we know like everywhere else, if you, if you don't come and succeed, your risk of attrition is very high. And what I want is for students to succeed and progress and obtain and complete and, and be fabulous. You know, I, I'm, I'm 49 years old. I'm too old to change the world single-handedly, um, but I can graduate cohorts and cohorts of students from a Cert 1 all the way through to a PhD who are off out changing the, their own worlds. And, and, and so, I have to think, like I have to acknowledge that um, given that you know, your student cohorts are traditionally those that are, more at risk of attriting, your attrition rate is not 
as high as what you would expect. So obviously, even though you've got these high risk cohorts, you're managing it really well for that, like compared to other universities. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's that's true. Also, we see disparate success rates for different equity groups in a way that that I hand on heart wouldn't want to see. So we are sharing some of the same challenges as us colleagues elsewhere in the sector, but we're also doing really well at some things. And if I look, for example, at the completion, the unit completion rate in vocational training for First Nations students compared to students who are not First Nations, they're almost comparable. We're almost at parity, which is a fabulous outcome and a testament to the amazing training that the vet teams provide here. Um, we're not we're not as close in higher ed, so we have work to do in higher ed. Um, but it's work I'm excited about and work that there are fabulous First Nations staff, volunteers, adjuncts, research fellows, fabulous people up here to work with to understand how to tackle that work in culturally appropriate and culturally safe ways that are actually going to work. So one of the things that I love about this place is that people are, are like very ready to co-design. Um, and, and you know, it's not a, a population of 18 and 19-year-old students straight out from school who have limited experience. People here have a rich background, students and staff. They have existing strengths and talents. They have existing bodies of work in terms of their, their place in the community or their place in the workforce. And so co-designing with students up here is fun and fabulous because they know, like they know heaps of stuff. They know more than I do about what the student experience at CDU is like. Um, and so I think we've really been able to have have our best results when we hand over this sense that we are a service provider and they are a recipient. And instead we, we understand the shared goal we have around student success. Um, and we involve students in designing um, solutions that will really work for them. So. Um, co-design is a pillar of our, our approach up here and we're lucky to have a population that um, contributes in really impressive ways. Um, I think that also comes back to like what we are talking about before where whilst we may be experts in some elements, you know, we're all, we're not experts in the students. They're experts yeah. in themselves. So if they're able to bring their expertise in, it's yeah. amazing how much more we can create. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, we're we're learning to apply multiple cultural lenses to the work that we do. So if you want to hit multiple audiences, I was talking to one of my team this morning about changing our changing our focus from input to outcomes. So this is not about what we what we lay on the table. This is about the impact of what we lay on the table has on the population. And so we've just drafted a new student code of conduct. It's got beautiful words. It talks about respect and integrity and inclusion and belonging. And, you know, it's all the things you would want from a student community. But that's not the work. The work isn't the code of conduct. The work is how we apply multiple cultural lenses to bring that to life with different groups of students, with queer students, with First Nations students, with students with a disability with students from offshore countries who have come to Australia for the first time through CDU study. Um, And so how do we stop expecting people to read our code? And how do we start um, doing the work that we're doing in a way that reaches those different cultural communities 
in language they understand, in a framing that's understood, in a way that's relevant, and, and that will see to you that will never be one way. It will never, there will never be one way of bringing a student code of conduct to life, right? Where's the Creole version for our, our big rivers community down in Catherine? You know, where's the Yongli version for all the folk who live and work around Nolamboy and other areas in East Arnhem Land? Um, you know, where's where's student conduct brought to life by our Nepalese community? And, and how do we make reference to, you know, Nepalese cultural traditions in understanding conduct? So that, that's fabulous, right? That's a fabulous um, kind of, um, yeah, integrated, diverse, challenging environment to work in and such opportunity for everybody to learn. And if we do something that really works for the Nepalese community and suddenly the Creole community are like, wow, I get that, right? Because my culture is a bit like that culture. And suddenly you have these like connections that don't require whiteness to be at the centre of everything or Anglo approaches or Western approaches to be at the centre of everything and for everybody else to translate through that. Instead, you get Creole Nepalese connections, or you get Yongnu, I would be making it up. You get these connections that don't rely on us as a point of translation. Yeah. Um, and that that's magic. That's magic. And that's actually releasing, you know, the, the power of change to the people in the community yeah. rather than having a locus of control. Um, so I care about quality and I care about outcomes. Um, and I'm trying to achieve that up here in ways that are less about control um, and I'm more about um, my learning. And I, I love that approach. I think that's so powerful. And I think it's, it's proof that it can be done because quite often it's like, oh, it's too hard or we're just, you know, we've got it here and everyone. And it's like it's not hard. It's about letting go. It's about being open mm. and, as you say, not being the white Anglo-centric version but actually saying, well, what is what is the best stuff that's out there? Yeah. Yeah. Like what if we reinvented graduations that had a nod to the rich history and cultural tradition of Western Anglo higher education but also had a nod to how, how ritual works in other cultures in other places in other traditions and what if we were always seeking to represent multiple lenses and multiple views not because we're trying to undo the ritual but because we're trying to find ritual in more than one place yeah God, how exciting that it's really it's really exciting now don't, <laughs> don't email me and say like give us your roadmap because it won't <laughs> it won't work for somewhere else but the approach might work yeah the mindset. Think, yeah, that's right. Um, and I, you know, I'm reminded I was looking at, um, you know, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about really practical things that for queer students in particular make a real difference at a university because I think we've lost in Australia a bit of that, um, not a checklist, but a kind of framing for people who are passionate about making their institutions more inclusive. We've lost a bit of momentum around what that might look like. And there's really great examples in the US and in Canada. Um, and, and so I, I want to mention some of those things. But I was thinking about the, the impact of 
leaders, I work for a vice chancellor now and we have a new VC who's been here not very long. Um, they're very fabulous and quite well-known, Scott Bowman. Who's, yes, I know, I know Scott. <laughs> yeah, um, and, I, you know, I've worked with lots of different vice chancellors, some of which I think are fabulous and some of which I didn't think were fabulous. Um, and and it's really, you know, Scott, Scott is not particularly knowledgeable about queer students. Scott is not particularly knowledgeable about gender gender identities or sexualities um but you know what it doesn't matter because because what scott is passionate about is inclusion and belonging and moving an institution beyond acceptance um into real real tangible inclusion and so when i said to scott in his first two weeks we've never really acknowledged ida hobbit day international day against homophobia biphobia, transphobia, and intersexism. I got that in the wrong order. Um, we've never really acknowledged that. Like I've been here a while and people have been here much longer than me and it sort of doesn't ever get a marker in the calendar of community, you know, the university community. Oh. But it was like, tell me what to tell me what you need me to do and I'm there. Um, and and it's not having a leader who says, I know what we need to do. We're going to do X. It's having a leader who says, tell me what Tell me, I'm, tell me what you need and I'm there for you, Sam. And so, you know, we raised an inclusive rainbow flag. Um, you know, we launched an ally network. We have 90 members of staff now at CDU who are active members of an ally network. We launched a joint student and staff pride group. Um, we had orientation this week ready for semester two and six more students signed up for the pride group. Um, and so it's the capacity of a leader to really set the tone in an organization that can change the ways in which people within that organization can act with power and purpose to make changes so I don't need Scott to drive the agenda but he somehow manages to unlock that the agenda being driven from within the organization and that's a very powerful lesson in leadership yes yes and I think um, also, one of Scott's strengths is he listens to the students as well. Yeah. Yeah, he really does, <laughs> uh, which is great. Like, like, if you don't know what students think, get up and move. Get up out of your office. Get off your seat. Go, go hang out. Go pop into a lecture. Pop into a workshop. Pop into the trades training shed. Go down to the kitchens down at the Palmerston campus. Hang out in Alice Springs Library for a while. Um, and talk to people and ask them. And you, you, you know, you, you've always got to balance the story of one with the experience of many. Um, but the more of those ones you can collect in terms of listening to stories, the more you will really understand what your institution is or isn't achieving. Yes. Um, you know, we have a pretty aggressive roadmap around inclusion, um, and this is a. This is not the easiest of places to do that. The Northern Territory is not known for being progressive and inclusive um, for queer people, for example. It's not the cultural hub of queer Australia. Mm. Um, but you know what? There's amazing people here doing great work. Um, the Indigenous scene up here is plenty queer and the queer scene up here is plenty Indigenous and that's a really beautiful intersection that you don't necessarily get 
in other places and individual people are making that happen. There are some some real rock stars up here making that happen. Um, and I love, you know, we have ambition around gaining a rainbow tech accreditation. So that's a um, process run by um, an organisation based in Victoria. They have six standards around LGBTQI um, inclusive practice. And as an organisation, you can go through a process of accreditation and see whether or not you can get rainbow tick accredited. Um, the Northern Territory AIDS and Hepatitis Council just received rainbow tick accreditation, which is amazing. Um, the first in the Northern Territory, and I really want us to be the second. We're not ready yet. I wouldn't, it's on my roadmap, but it's maybe two or three years away because we have a lot of work to do internally first. Um, but, but we're starting that work. And I was thinking um, this conversation with you prompted me to think about what are some of the practical things that people could be doing who are passionate about this? Um, and so what are what I think of as green flags? We all talk about red flags, right? Well, that's a red flag. Well, don't go there, that's a red flag. What are the green flags? And, and particularly in the eyes of our students. So if I was a, a you know, young gender queer student or a student who had just transitioned or if I, you know, if my sexuality was, was um lesbian or gay or bisexual or queer, um, what would the green flags be for me when I was looking at an institution? And, and it's some of these things. It's, it's that there is an ally network. Um, so there, are, there, is a, there is the active fostering of an ally community within the organisation, maybe staff and students, um, and visibly identified people who are safe, um, points of contact, and, and who are stand up and say, I am an ally to you. That's a really powerful green flag. Um, social spaces online and on campus but for queer students that's really important in our new city campus in in Darwin CBD we've we've built in a um, queer student space so students will be able to have access to that space there's also a space for indigenous students and a space for women and so uh, some folk might have access to all three um, pride groups so obviously if, you know if you're on the current students website and you're looking at the the student groups is there a pride group is there somewhere where I can make social connections with other students um, does the university celebrate important days in the queer calendar so did they celebrate Idaho Hobbit are they doing wear it purple are they doing the transgender day of remembrance um, are they doing something for whatever that location's pride festival or you know whether it's as big as Mardi Gras or Midsummer or whether it's Catherine Pride, um, which is a fabulous local regional event, um, is the university doing something in, in, on that cultural calendar? Um, will there be toilets I can use comfortably and safely? Um, and does the university promote that? When I look at campus maps, does it give me any information about that? Are the facilities team on board with providing appropriate bathroom facilities for everybody in the community? Um, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about queer students not being a kind of recognised equity group in the Australian landscape. Um, and so often there aren't programs targeted towards queer students, despite the marginalisation and discrimination that we face. But are there other sort of bursary or support programs? So are there scholarships or are there, um, you know, mentors or are there, you know, particular support programs that identify that queer students often have had challenging times accessing education and succeeding to date. Um, does anybody in the careers team understand what it's like to be 
a gender non-conforming person and need a placement? What about a placement in a primary school? How would that go? So, you know, what's your careers team's approach to vetting placements or internships to making sure that, that we don't just create a safe and inclusive environment here, but that we understand that when we send you out into workplaces um, as a compulsory part of your course, that we have some responsibility to make sure that's safe and inclusive for you too. Um, and then can I see visibly queer LGBTQIA plus people in decision-making roles? whether that's students or staff, in leadership roles. Um, can I see people like me in this institution? Can I see me in curriculum? Can I see me in assessment? Are my relationships represented? Is my body represented? Um, so if I'm in a health science course, is, is everything binary? Or, or, or do gender non-conforming folk get, um, you know, a good and equal measure of representation? Can I find me in what I'm studying? Um, am I there in the language? Am I there in the, in, in the form? And, and I think where we can't fix everything, right? We can't fix every employer that a student might go to for a placement. We can't fix every school that they might do a you know, module in. We can't fix every place everywhere all at once. But where we know we can't fix it, do we recognise the risk that that presents to somebody's safety and sense of self? And have we done something to mitigate that risk? So if your pronoun and your name is different than it is legally, I can't process a student loan for you in your current name. I'm going to have to use your legal name because it's a legal process. But have I at least recognised that that presents a point of risk for your health and safety and well-being? And have I done something to mitigate that risk? by at least acknowledging that it exists and so where we can't be in a position to fix everything can we can we make sure that we acknowledge the risk of some things and and help folk through that in a way that doesn't harm them and, and even just acknowledging that that it is a problem because quite often I think um, we get caught up in following a form and it's just okay, well, are you this, this or this? And it's like, well, what if I'm none of them? It's like, well, you have to be one of them because there are three options and I can only do three options. And I can't move. The form doesn't yeah. let me go on. No, and, no. And, and let's get beyond the word other, you know, as a sort of yeah. safe catch-all. So even little things like if, if on a form you've got a binary option, it's X or Y or other, then, then change the word other to self-defined. Because yeah. it's much more positive language than the othering of the word mm. other. The really little things like, okay, maybe there does have to be an option and you do have to fill a form in and it does have to be collected and it's government data, but even some of the nomenclature that we could put around that can really change a person's perception of how much we know and understand their lived experience and what yeah. impact we're having. And then the other thing I would say is build queerness into all your other campaigns. So if you're doing a heap of work around First Nations, don't forget sister girls and brother boys and other queer Indigenous people. If you're doing a whole work, load of work around Respect Now Always and the National Student Safety Survey that's coming up, what about, what about same-sex relationships and the context of violence that can happen in there and are you treating that issue sensitively and inclusively? Um, what about the work that you're doing in a campus housing? on-campus housing? How are you treating queerness in the context of, of on-campus housing? Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess just having that lens through the other things that you're doing around 
great practice um, and making sure that you haven't forgotten that gender diverse um, folk are accessing all of your other services too. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I know we've, we've had, this has been a really long one. <laughs> um, well, the, the one other thing I was thinking, I think you've covered a fair bit of this and what you've already spoken about, but was really about the insights that you can share about the changing student experience and how we can evolve as an industry to mm-hmm. better meet the needs of our students both now and in the future. It's such a good question and super important. Um, I mean, I think... I think perhaps I would just leave people with this one thought. How do we change from, how do we move, how do we transition from ways in which our solutions are based around the student to solutions that are based around the system? So equity students are not a problem. They're not challenging. They're not a deficit. The system works differently for people from different cultural and and other lens backgrounds. And that's not their fault, that's our fault. And so how do we move our approaches to inclusion and success and retention and progression and all those great outcomes that we work on all the time? How do we make sure that our interventions include changing the system, not the person? Because you know what? The person's already fabulous. The person is already fabulous. And so what about my institution doesn't work for that person? And why? what systems can I change? How can I take my HEP funding focus and at least a part put it to changing the system? That's, yeah. I think, my next challenge. And, I, you know, that's that sort of decolonization because it doesn't matter whether, you know, we're talking about gender identity or race but that colonized version is so very white it's very christian oriented it's it's all that sort of thing and it it excludes everyone yeah it puts something at the center yeah (laughs) everybody else at varying degrees away from the center like i've spent my whole life living a really long way from the center yeah I think the centre's overblown, to be honest, and I find great power from living in the corner. Um, and, I, you know, I, I love my marginal life. And I, and I you know, if I, if I can show other younger queer people that there's great power to be had in, in the margins and freedom in operating outside of that, you know, but not everybody has that experience and I have a lot of privilege. Like, I'm, I'm white. Um, I don't have to deal with racism um, on top of everything else and so you know I say that I love the margins acknowledging the privilege that I hold I, I, I don't have a disability I'm a white person and so my marginal life comes with a lot of privilege still yeah. Um, but yeah we we still have this sense that there is a there's a best possible thing to be and then a less than best in degrees away from that and I think tackling that for me is the next frontier in student services because our students are much more diverse than that thinking. Um, And and if we really want to support students to succeed, we have to change. Um, And and don't don't let any of us go out with any kind of messaging that says you're at deficit, we're at deficit, we have work to do. And I think that comes back to, you know, being the best we can as a 
you know, as a whole nation or a continent, you know, we need everyone. And, you know, if we're not including so many people, we're missing out on so much. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, that's all the questions I had. Was there (laughs) anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up, Sam? Uh, I think I've said everything I can think of. Um, I mean, I I think some of the other things we're doing up here, which I love, is working more strongly with community groups. Mm. So with NTARC, with the Melaleuca, which is the Migrant Resource Centre. So we we have, because because it's a smaller place and Mm. and the real benefit of that is that everybody knows somebody who knows somebody and there's lots of shared goals. We have lots of shared goals. And so... I've worked in other institutions. I've worked in institutions my whole life. I've worked in universities my whole life. And I I feel like they have been much more insular than we are up here. And CDU wants to be king of connection. And so how do we make sure that we put our, you know, tear down the fences and join hands with the right kinds of people? Um, it's been the other gift of, of being up here. I think I highly recommend the territory. Everybody should come. I think so. It's, Every time I talk to someone up there, I just get more and more excited about the idea of going. You know, when we're allowed to travel somewhere outside <laughs> our, our own backyard, um, yeah. you know, I, we're very blessed here um, being regional. But um, for so many people, I think they miss out. So thank you so much for today, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. And I know I learned so much as well. Uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with you um i'll make sure that we provide some contact details um in the uh podcast comment section and again just thank you so much for joining us it's been great thanks jane the end of this episode of the student experience podcast i hope you can join us next week for another great interview